Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we watched Come and See, which is widely regarded as one of the greatest war movies ever made. Directed by Ellen Klimov and co-written by Alice Adamovich, a former Belarusian guerrilla fighter during World War II, it covers the Nazi occupation of Belarus. Alexei Kravchenko stars as a teenage boy who volunteers to fight with the Soviet partisan forces, experiencing unparalleled horrors at the hands of the Nazis. And this episode is a listener request from Patreon subscriber uh, Sigurder. Thank you sincerely for this request. Um, It is quite a brutal film. It is famous for its unflinching depiction of violence, torture, and the horrors of war. So for listeners and viewers who might find that upsetting, consider this a warning for if you're planning to watch along with this podcast. We'll be discussing what is specifically in this movie as we go along, but um, that's sort of the blanket warning up top. I thought this movie was one of the best films I'd ever seen. It was incredible, but it is very, very punishing to watch, especially the last 45 minutes or so, which are just, I mean, we'll discuss. Grueling, traumatic. I think basically this film's sort of, I guess its brand would be that it's very extreme, but not gratuitous in the slightest. So like most of the time when people talk about films that are really extreme, you're talking about films that are like doing something for shock value this is the opposite of that it's made by people who survived this conflict it's kind of famous for being extremely realistic although as we will discuss there's various kind of artistically surreal elements in there yeah really upsetting (laughs) to watch (laughs) this has been released on the criterion via the criterion collection um as a disc and it's on the channel as well but their description of it and like the first line of every review that I read has some form of statement that's like, this is the most bleak movie I've ever seen. Like everyone says that. Ebert's review in the first paragraph, he says, this 1985 film from Russia is one of the most devastating films ever about anything. And in it, the survivors must envy the dead. And there's a slightly comical element to the way that people are like, this is the most upsetting movie I've ever seen. And then you watch the movie and you're like, yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Like, that seems about right. Yeah, because when people talk about this sort of film, there's almost like a theme park element to it. And there definitely is when people talk about really extreme horror movies. And like, you do watch this and it's just like, yeah, okay, everyone's (laughs) right. It's (laughs) just very alarming. I actually hadn't heard of this film until this year. And the reason why I heard about it was through the director, Ari Aster, obviously a horror filmmaker known for making uh, Hereditary. And uh, this is like one of his very favourite, favourite films. And he wrote kind of an article about it for the Criterion Collection this year. And having watched this, I'm just like, okay, so Ari Aster watched this movie and was like, what a masterpiece. What if I do like the entertainment version of this? <laughs> Yes. Um, obviously like not in like an offensive way because his films are very thoughtful in that regard but like what a bizarre lesson to take from this creatively <laughs> yeah I thought of Midsommar a couple times in this movie in a way that was not palatable to me at all frankly but um that's a different conversation and I didn't like that movie so I mean I like Ari Aster but people's brains work in strange ways and that's fine yeah It definitely was a sort of cult object for a long time in America. It was available on like one sort of strange DVD form. And I hadn't heard of it until this year either. It was definitely 
like hugely lauded at the time when it came out in the 80s, but it was not widely available. And then Criterion I mean, when made it, it came available. out, 29 million people saw it. Which I mean, is it nuts. makes sense in the Soviet Union. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense in the context of the Soviet Union, both in the sense of there being like limited film release and also in the sense that it is very clearly kind of a cultural exorcism and it was discussing something that was still in living memory for a lot of the audience. Like, it's still really wild to me that, that like, that number of people... This was, like, a mainstream hit, basically. And the idea of this screening to a wide audience now is completely unbelievable for numerous reasons, but primarily just the way, like, the film distribution industry works now. Yes. And, I mean, it was submitted as the foreign language film yeah. from the USSR at the Oscars that year and it was not selected shockingly watching it you're like yeah I can't really fathom like mainstream American culture in the 80s receiving this and that was even in an era when more people were watching kind of you know it was the Scorsese era more people were watching art film but yeah I think but before we kind of go into the movie just to give like a basic historical outline of when this takes place I'm going to go ahead and assume that much of our audience for this episode, this may be one of those podcasts where a lot of our audience hasn't watched the movie and are just listening to us for our beautiful dulcet tones. So to give some historical background, the Nazis invaded what was then known as Belarusia and there were local Soviet partisan guerrilla fighters who were fighting in like the swamps and the forests against the Nazis who were eventually ejected in, I believe, 1944 and it was a really, really awful time for this country. And it's also received far less um, attention like from other parts of the world than other elements of World War II because it doesn't fall into the kind of Western Europe and America-centric kind of public image of the way people have created a historical narrative around World War II. But um, a quarter of the country's population were lost. There were massive massacres throughout uh, rural villages uh, hard to put into words, which is why this film uh, was made. And um, for a lot of people, this was kind of how they found out about that historically, or for people who were from the Soviet Union and Belarusia specifically, this was kind of telling a story that allowed people to kind of process their experiences and their parents' experiences. Yeah, I mean, in the West, we obviously learn about World War II a lot, but it tends to be very focused on the sort of Western Front side of the European war. Even the Pacific Front, in my sort of experience of like high school education in America, you learn about the atom bomb, obviously, but the particulars of what was going on in the Pacific, we did not talk about very much. And then when you get to the sort of Soviet side that just never comes up. I mean, like yeah. Stalingrad and Leningrad a little bit, but it really doesn't get talked about very much. And I mean, you could teach a class on that war for an entire year. So like the American history teachers were desperately trying to do like hundreds of years. Like I get it. You can't do everything. But this is definitely an area that doesn't get covered a lot. And like, I didn't know about this specific portion of this history. And I am someone who knows a lot about World War II. So that speaks to the sort of cultural blindness, I think, of America on this subject. And I was really interested to find out more about it in a horrified way. And there's a specific massacre that they were drawing from in Belarus that the director, Elm Klimov, 
says in a sort of long quote on the Wikipedia page, he says, then I thought the world doesn't know about cotton, which is uh, like the cotton massacre in Poland, but there's an H in the name. Um, They know about cotton in Poland, um, but they don't know about Belarusia, even though more than 600 villages were burned there. And so clearly when they're making this movie, like they're aware that this history is not as widely known as some of the other elements of the European war. And part of the goal of the movie is to make that history more broadly known. But when you're watching the movie, it doesn't at all feel like it's trying to educate you until literally like a title card at the end of the movie where it says like 628, I think is the number villages in Belarus were burned and their inhabitants were killed. Film is so artistically masterful that it is not, it doesn't feel like it's concerned with teaching you something, but that is the effect, at least partially of what it's doing. The bigger effect is giving you a sense of what it must've been like to actually be there in a small way, which is uh, deeply, deeply upsetting. And there's there's a great deal going on technically in terms of immersing you in it. The most obvious kind of top level element of that is the fact that it very clearly stars non-professional actors. So the main character is approximately 13 or 14. He was played by a teenage boy who was 14 when they started filming. And he gives this famously incredible performance, which is very intense. And even though the story takes place over the course of a few days, you really see how much trauma can like age and change you over the course of that period. And then obviously everyone else are rural farmers. They are clearly kind of like real people rather than extras who have been like hired from a film industry. Uh, the film is also in Belarusian and uh, it's all filmed in natural light, which is very unusual. It gives it kind of a bit more of a documentary feel, I think. But in terms of like the cinematography, it's very stylized, which I think we will also be discussing at some point. Before we get into that, we should say, so we were alluding to the fact that some of the people who made it had experienced some of this stuff directly. And um, Ellen Klimov, the director, grew up in Stalingrad or was born there anyway. And he was lived through some of the Battle of Stalingrad and was evacuated from there with his mother, I think. And the co-writer of the film was who we mentioned was this um, guy, Ales Adamovich, who was a Belarusian slash Soviet writer. He, he served as a partisan in this sort of militia unit in this period. And he was the same age as the main character in this movie. And he became this very celebrated writer and academic in Soviet Belarus in the 20th century and was a huge influence apparently on Svetlana Alexievich, who won the Nobel Prize several years ago for her oral histories of various um, sort of Soviet historical moments, including the Chernobyl disaster, I think, which I thought I just thought was sort of interesting because uh, she's such an interesting figure. And he also, I think, after the end of the Soviet Union was instrumental in opening up various archives that had been sort of censored and closed. But he had very direct experience of this thing in particular, whereas Klimov had, I think, experienced more of like a similar trauma as a very young person at Stalingrad. And so they're coming to this as people who had, again, like really experienced this. And Again, Klimov says in this interview that Adamovich says to him, he's worried the movie will be too unwatchable because it's so brutal. And I, there's a quote somewhere, we'll link to a bunch of stuff, where Klimov is worried, it says, like, if I had included everything I'd experienced, that the movie would have been unwatchable. But Adamovich says, let them not watch it then. 
this is something we must leave after us as evidence of war, as a plea for peace. And I am a great aficionado of World War II movies, like I've seen so many of them. And some of them are more watchable than others and meant to be more sort of entertaining. But, and I think it's a bit like you're bringing to a movie like this the knowledge that the people had experienced it, like even without the specifics, because I knew when this movie was made, I assumed that there were people involved who had had some sort of direct experience with the conflict. It feels to me like you can really tell that this is the case. Like it just feels so specific and also so sort of traumatized the film itself in a way that no other movie about this period even the ones that I think are really great and upsetting, manage. Well, like, both in terms of the subject matter, like, the brutality of what they're showing you, but also the way you're simultaneously constantly invited to, like, stare into the eyes of this incredibly traumatised kid, but also you're meant to be kind of embodying what he's experiencing at the same time by the immersive qualities. It's just, like, uniquely trying to trick your brain into thinking you're there. Yes. And this is the paradox too, right? Is that I'm sitting here saying like, these men had this direct experience of these horrors and they're bringing it to this movie in this unique way. But Kravchenko, the young actor who plays this guy, who has very little dialogue over the course of the movie, most of the performance is him reacting to things and you have these close-ups of his face throughout. The movie is so reliant on him being so good. And he is so good. And the pain of the experience coming through from him and just like the horror of it is all in his face and he was 14 in 1985 so like obviously he hadn't experienced any of this and so like the alchemy of the process somehow works yeah the experience of making this film must have been just exhausting and grueling because they're just doing you know there's points where they're just like wading through bogs and stuff but at the same time like i read a few articles for this including one at the Criterion channel and a couple of cinematography ones, which we will link to once again. But the kind of the director, I think he lived for like a long time after this film was made, even though he decided this would be his last film. So there's quite a lot of interviews with him and the lead actor who went on to have just like a normal film and TV career after this. And they both kind of spoke about how the experience of starring in this film was designed with the express purpose of like making sure this kid doesn't end up too fucked up because they knew that it was going to have to be a very intense experience to get like a good performance. Uh, but Klimov, who is clearly a survivor of childhood trauma, was aware that, I mean, I think there was points where he said in interviews, like, oh, I didn't want to send him mad, basically, was the way he was phrasing it. Um, so there was a lot of kind of unusual techniques used. Uh, there's mentions of him getting like a hypnotherapist to try and get the child actor into the zone <laughs> and that sort of thing. But it seems like, you know, they made the film and he was fine. I could not find any reference to any similar kind of techniques discussed with uh, the girl who had a secondary role. So like, obviously the boy is the main character and the film follows him directly, like his journey through this part of Belarusia over the course of a few days. But he meets up with a girl towards the beginning and she's sort of in the first half of the film. That actress did not go on to have an acting career. And I think possibly... The fact that she's not prominent is perhaps why she's not being discussed alongside the lead actor, but obviously he is the protagonist. Yes, and she vanishes before the movie gets really gets really going yeah. in the second half. But I mean, it's still there's still some pretty horrible stuff earlier on. 
we keep mentioning the close-ups, so why don't we talk about the cinematography now that we've given a little bit of background. The cinematographer is this guy, Alexei Rodinov, who has mostly done Russian films, but also a lot of Sar- Sally Potter movies, including Orlando, which I just thought was delightful. Great. I mean, great film. Yeah. <laughs> looks, looks very good. And this was very early in his career, which is really impressive because it is stunning, as you were sort of alluding to. I didn't realize it had all been natural light, but that makes sense because it certainly looks that way. I mean, it looks very, like, brown. It's very <laughs> gray is, you know, and green. Yeah. There's lots of fog that's shot really well. And there is a lot of steady cam and a lot of close-ups. And um, Roger Deakins, the great Roger Deakins, who has a blog where he talks about cinematography, which I imagine he's using a lot recently because he's not working. Very recently, someone like posted a question about this movie to like Mr. Deakins. I just love it. The whole thing is so great. And he replied and said, yes, the camera work in Come and See is not flashy, but I would hope my own camera work is not ever, quote, flashy. <laughs> Hilarious. I think I'm right in saying that Come and See utilized Steadicam in a way that had never that had not been done up to that time. The camera work is actually very ambitious, but it always complements what is happening rather than deliberately trying to embellish it. The way the camera stays with the boy and doesn't allow the viewer any relief from what is happening to and around him is very reminiscent of Ivan's childhood, which I have never seen, I will say. Klimov also has a character has characters look right to the lens, which is quite striking and also a little unnerving in some way. It almost forces the viewer to consider their plight, which I think is a great sort of little summation of what is happening visually. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's by far the most noticeable is the fact that the camera is constantly giving you centered close-ups, which is not, not a technique that's often used, but... It's also, towards the end, you kind of realise that the close-ups are also sort of intentionally misleading, because, like I said, we are seeing everything from the boy's perspective, so you've got this kind of split mindset where you simultaneously are the boy and you're looking into the boy's eyes to sort of empathise with him. But also, like, a lot of the time, this kind of, that that camera angle is obviously used when there's, like, a conversation and someone's speaking to something or speaking through the fourth wall. And towards the end of the movie, there's this scene... Um, with the boy and this other girl who's been raped and tortured by a group of Nazi soldiers and you see kind of an exchange of shots where it's face to face and you kind of assume that they're looking at each other and it's an, it's an exchange between the two and then for like the first and only time in the movie you see the camera um, actually pan round so you see that they're not looking at each other at all and like we are just sort of the third person spectator that's experiencing both of their trauma through the camera rather than them interacting in any way. Yes. Which was really jarring for me. Yeah. The movie that this made me think of the most for various reasons, both thematic and visual, was Son of Saul, which was like five, four or five years ago now, which was a Hungarian film that won um, the foreign film Oscar, directed by this guy, Laszlo Nemes, who had never made a feature film before i think before that which was nuts and that was also a world war ii movie it was a holocaust movie and i think was i think must have been like directly influenced by this film although i don't know that for sure and that film is specifically about the death camps and um follows this guy who's in one of them and it's almost all shot in close-up 
and almost all close-ups of the main character's face, if I can recall correctly. I've only seen it once because it was the most upsetting movie I've ever seen. It's an absolute masterpiece. Yeah, I'm not watching that yeah. one. <laughs> I mean, so I'm really glad I saw it. I saw it in a theater, which was good because you can't, I mean, you could leave, but you know, it's harder. You can't pause the movie, right? You have to just sit there and watch it. I would recommend it in the sense that like, if you are someone who is interested in movies about this stuff, it's the best Holocaust movie I've ever seen to the point where I was like, I never need to watch another movie about that because like, this is it. And I think has made me slightly inured to other horrific movies about things of this type because it was so upsetting that like, you just, anything else seems not as bad. But it's more sort of um, rigid than this movie. Like this movie has a lot of close-ups, but it also has all kinds of different other shots when that's helpful to the film, where Sanosaw is really, really just this guy's face. And all of the horrific other stuff is happening around him, and you can kind of hear it and see it at the edge of the shot, but you're on the, his face the whole time. And there were some people who didn't like that because they felt it was sort of diminishing what was happening or not engaging with the politics sufficiently, but I felt that that was not correct and like it was really really upsetting to me to watch it but this movie seemed to me to be connected to that in the sense that it's doing similar things with the close-ups when he he is using them in that you're getting so much from the actor's faces and sometimes avoiding other stuff that you might be looking at in a way that is like you know it's there but you're not quite seeing it and then they show you and you're like oh god there's one I mean, there's one shot where they they finally get back to the boy's house they're traveling to, and then you see a horrific thing, and then the camera quickly cuts away, and it's just a nightmare. But there's not any, like, discussion of the political situation particularly in this movie. No, because right? the boy knows literally nothing. Right. And, like, the opening scenes of the film are literally, like, this boy knows nothing, understands nothing, and then the film is like, well, now you're completely traumatized but you still don't really know anything (laughs) so we can talk about the end when we get there but like the opening of the movie is he's like searching for this for a gun so that he can join the partisan forces because obviously like it's not a military where they're issuing them weapons right and he's really excited when he finds one because he can join his mother just freaks out because she's like no like you can't leave us because she knows what's going to happen to him and he clearly does not grasp any of the significance of this at all right and once he gets to the group, there's sort of some sloganeering about communism and like the nation, but that's the extent of any kind of political discussion. But as the viewer, you don't need any of that because you no. grasp what's going on totally. And once the Nazis show up, like you understand the horror of what's going on because you can see it, but also the bigger structural situation, like you know the bigger historical picture, even if like, I don't know the specifics of the history of the Belarus stuff, which I didn't when I was watching this and I'm not exactly an expert now, like we know enough about the Nazis that you get the bigger context and just showing the granular details, then you can sort of extrapolate yourself, which is kind of the son of Saul thing too. Like basically son of Saul is about the mechanics of the death camp and showing you how, how mechanized it was to make the point of like that this is a system and how horrific it is to be the one per- to be a person inside of that system and 
I think it's interesting when filmmakers try to excavate the humans inside of these horrors, right? Because that's who is experiencing this stuff. And this movie, I struggle to think of a more film that was that's better at showing how horrific it is to just be like a regular person in the midst of one of these horrible conflicts. Like the peasants who are just in their houses when the Nazis come by and just have to be like, uh, you know, like, don't kill me. Which is obviously yeah. an image that we've seen in films and books and whatever, if you're someone who has lived in the world in the past however many years. Well, I mean, it's very much like a written by the victors situation, because for obvious reasons, the vast majority of war films that we've watched have been, like, they've been focusing on British or American people and predominantly soldiers, and therefore have at least to some extent sort of an action movie situation. So, like, 1917, like, after watching this, I'm like, 1917 can go fuck itself. Oh my god, um, yes. And, like, when we, were, when we were discussing The Five Bloods, I watched Apocalypse Now kind of to prepare for that. And we also were both kind of looking up which Vietnamese movies were made about the same period. Because obviously, like, Vietnam War movies are a massive part of the Hollywood action film industry now. But neither of us have seen any Vietnamese perspective films. And it was interesting to kind of look that up and see that the most prominent kind of critically acclaimed films were about the civilian experience and focused often on girls and women which is very much not the case for when you're watching like a World War II film where it's all like, ooh, Captain America. Well, and there will often be, and there was in 1917 too, like a French woman who like someone interacts with. Yeah. And, or, and often like you'll see like a Nazi being mean to someone. Like, as I said, like this is a common cultural image. But it's done in such a way that it doesn't, and even if they wind up killing the person, like it doesn't, it feels like a cliche at this point. Well, something I was thinking a lot about once we got to the final third of this film when the Nazis show up and things get really disturbing is how, like something I kept thinking about was just how much Hollywood movies actually buy into this, the Nazi propaganda and self-image. Because the, the image of like a Hollywood Nazi is often a stereotype which is promoting like the Aryan ideal you know it's like you hire these actors who look very sort of blonde and germanic and like angular you know they are what the nazis want to conceive of themselves as and you get these really like well-pressed uniforms and everyone looks really good and obviously you do also get like you know nazi villains who are intentionally repulsive in kind of a physical way which is an issue in itself but this film is kind of you know, even though obviously the Nazis are not living in a state of like poverty and disaster, like the civilian characters and the Belarusian partisans, at the same time, it's like this is just like a bunch of like normal, like working class men who haven't showered in months who are wandering around the countryside in the 1940s. So, like, obviously they all look like shit as well. And it's, yeah, it's like the one of the kind of elements of Hollywoodized World War II dramas that is not kind of as widely discussed but you know there's there's always going to be like a range of different ways to make a movie about something that's kind of this this much of like a an intense possibly traumatic topic and i don't think it's like bad to make an entertainment movie about war but definitely once you've watched this you're like wow hollywood certainly doesn't like to in some ways make nazis look good even when they're the villains 
Well, you think about Inglorious Bastards, right? Do you ever see that? Yeah, that is the film I was yeah. thinking about a yeah. lot. I was like, wow. <laughs> Which is probably my favorite Tarantino film. I'm not a Tarantino person particularly, but like I had I, I enjoyed that movie. It's yeah. really fun. I think it's politically bankrupt, but I think it's really enjoyable to watch. But like Christoph Waltz is great in that movie. Like wonderful. I would not rescind his Oscar. But he's, and he's scary. Like, he's a bad guy in that film. But he's playing a dandy. He's, like, cool and scary. He's dresses well. He's erudite. He speaks many languages. He's really smart. And, you know, it's just, I mean, obviously, I'm sure there were many, like, intelligent and cultured Nazis at, like, the top of the ranks. It's part of what was disturbing about the whole situation. But, like... That is that image is definitely pervasive in Hollywood, which and is part of what like Tarantino's commenting on. You see on, it but. like literally now, like for the past five years, there's been very public discussions of how like media outlets will interview some, you know, like fascist dick bag, and they'll be like, "Oh yeah, he's got like such a good haircut. Here's this like <laughs> cool young metrosexual Nazi that like all the kids love on the internet, and it's just like." You know, it's some guy who's managed to put, like, a tie on. And it's like, you are completely failing to realize the very blatant and shitty propagandistic elements of this. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, this... The massacre that they're specifically drawing from in the last third of the movie, which well, we could, could probably discuss in more detail, was partially made up of a brigade of soldiers, I'm trying to find the specific quote, that was like a brigade of Nazi soldiers that were like ex-convicts, I think, who were, had like committed all kinds of appalling crimes. And they were basically like, we need to just get rid of these guys, like send them off to Belarus. <laughs> and then uh, they did some really horrible things. So, I mean, not that the Nazis who had not had, uh, bad things in their background, weren't also doing awful things, but they clearly were just like, well, whatever. Like, just get rid of these guys, they can do whatever they want out there and it's no problem. And you see in the film, they show up in this town and just, I mean, torture and murder these people. Um, and there's nothing glamorous about it, needless to say. And the way that it's shot is just unrelenting. I mean, it's basically 45 minutes of this. And it's done technically in a really masterful way. But you're just like, oh my god, this is just never ending. And I thought a lot while watching it about the sort of surreal elements of the film, which are there from the beginning. Like, there's sort of various surreal images or qualities to various things that this boy experiences um they try to steal a cow at one point and like everyone except him involved in this process winds up getting killed and the cow gets killed and he like wakes up the next morning he's been sleeping on the cow which is dead and it's just this sort of bizarre situation but especially once the nazis show up and they are um they wind up burning down this barn with all these people in it. And I think the way that we have sort of culturally come to talk about the Nazis is through the sort of banality of evil prism, right? Which is obviously very important and useful. Like you see pictures of like the people who were guards at Auschwitz or whatever, and they're just hanging out. And like, 
you need to understand that that's how people behave. And that's really disturbing. But I think also that there's something that this movie gets really well about the surreality of what the Nazis did, which is obviously not exclusive to them. Like there have been horrific war crimes throughout human history, but the fact that they were so organized about it makes it even stranger. And watching this movie forces you to sort of witness this in a way that really messes with your head because it just shouldn't be happening, right? Like, this is not happening. Yeah, I mean, the experience of watching the film is like, even though it is like a journey movie where you're following this character from place to place, but it's intentionally as disorienting as possible and the whole experience is like awful chaos. But then the final third, which is the massacre of these villagers, um, kind of begins with the boy uh, hiding among the villagers to hide the fact that he's a partisan. And he is seemingly like the only person there who understands that the Nazis are just going to kill them because like to a normal person, your your brain simply just can't compute that someone would just show up somewhere and like torture and murder everyone. Like it's not, it's not something that they can understand en masse. So like there's no attempt to fight back. There's just like confusion. People are stuck in a barn. They don't really know what's going to happen. They're just scared. And then they are literally just all horrifically murdered. Yes. And there, I mean, there are all kinds of just little details. There's a female Nazi officer who's like eating a crab leg while this is happening in a way that you're just like... I mean, all of the detail is very much... It's very much sort of like PTSD memory. Yeah. There's been kind of a lot of discussion about how like film is the medium to explore kind of memory and time and how we can experience and re-experience stuff. Not wording this very well, but you know what I mean. (laughs) And this film is very much like you are immersed in what he's experiencing, but it's almost like it's a memory of what he's experienced because there's certain details that jump out and the film focuses on in the same way that like when you are in like a heightened state, you pick up on certain things that aren't necessarily relevant because that's just the way like the human brain works. And as we have discussed in our Oscar podcast in the past, I am not technically minded enough to know what sound design is. <laughs> but this is a very rare film where I was like, wow, the sound design is really smart because the way it's kind of uh, organized, much like the camera work, is it's very focused around the protagonist. So you're hearing what he is hearing, which is definitely a technique you see in lots of films because it kind of gives you a specific perspective but here you're hearing what he's hearing but it also kind of adds to the fantastical elements so from like a very literal sense there's a point of the film where he's near an explosive and he goes partially deaf so you hear a lot of kind of whistling and stuff um but there's also parts where he's hearing like voices at different volumes and and that sort of thing and like when the music comes in it's very like creepy and surreal because it's not the type of movie that's going to have a traditional soundtrack so yeah the the sound design in this is very interesting yeah i was really struck by the sound as well as you say when he sort of goes partially deaf that's a very obvious moment when it sort of goes wonky but it's really in and out in a notable but not distracting way as a very effective way I think of conveying what's happening in his head especially when it gets to the later parts the sort of massacre sequence at the end you don't see him as much in that because the camera's sort of roving around showing you all this other stuff 
but the sound, if I recall correctly, is still doing kind of strange things at that point, which I think in an unconscious way kind of still ties you back to that character because it's in some way reflecting his experience, even if your brain isn't consciously like quite getting that. I mean, every technical element of this movie, even the stuff we haven't talked about, was, I thought, masterful. All the costumes and everything, like, you would just never know when this movie had been made. Like, clearly it's modern enough that it wasn't made in the 1950s. But if you had just shown this to me and been like, guess when this was from without me knowing it was 1985, I would have had no clue. There's no tell. Which is a testament to how carefully they were trying to have it really feel like the period. And there's not a lot of music, but the music that they do use is really effective. Um, and there's a Mozart cue at the end that works really well also that Ebert has a really good little detail about in his review that you can read if you so choose. Um, to conclude, I guess we should talk about the very, very end, which is quite shocking and also quite masterful. I thought this yeah. movie was great the whole time. And it was the little bit at the end where I was like, it's a masterpiece. Like, <laughs> Yeah. The so, so the original the original title of this movie was Kill Hitler, which I think would have had like a much, a very different response from yeah. English language audiences because that just sounds like a B movie or something. But the the original title would have referred to this final sequence, which is a reversal of a very common uh, technique in especially war films, but just historical dramas in general, which is a montage of real historical footage. And at the end, um, once the boy has like experienced all of this horrific trauma, he sees uh, just like a poster of Hitler on the ground and shoots it. And we see a montage of Hitler footage, which reverses from the mid-1940s uh, back through his life until we end with a still image, which is the earliest photo of Hitler when he's just like a little adorable toddler in his mother's lap. I think what that what that montage is, is it's like sort of this exorcism for the main character. But then once he reaches the point where he's envisioning Hitler as a child, like he can't bring himself to kill Hitler. Yes. And it's one interpretation of this very... Uh, ambiguous <laughs> montage. Well, is ambiguous, but he doesn't. He's sh- shooting repetitively and doesn't shoot at the very end, so that isn't yes. so ambiguous. The previous there is archival footage just before that, which is from one of the death camps. I was quite shocked by the inclusion of that because obviously the images of those it was some corpses and then some of the survivors that some of the soldiers had liberated it's just i mean it's the most upsetting thing you can see obviously and you're just not expecting it because you know you've been watching this fictional movie and you're in that zone and part of my brain was like i don't want to be seeing that like why are they showing that to me i don't want to see that but that was my whole brain (laughs) right oh i mean like yes i definitely was just like yeah but i think i mean he's obviously not putting it in in a cavalier manner. And I think the whole point is like, you've watched my movie for this long and we've sort of fictionalized this. And obviously it's very punishing. So it's not like you've been like sitting here entertained this whole time, but like, this is what really happened. And it's sort of forcing you to confront your participation and spectatorship with the movie. And to remember that what you're watching 
actually happened in quotes, which clearly from all of the interviews, their whole project is about that, right? As opposed to just making a film that is a story and that's entertaining. Like they want to try to recreate the horrors that happened to them and to warn people like this cannot happen again. And then he moves to the Hitler stuff and there's the quote from Ebert's review, which is great and I think sums up a lot of how I felt about it. He says, I must not describe the famous sequence at the end, which we, of course, have just described. Um, It must unfold as a surprise for you. It pretends to roll back history. You will see how. It is unutterably depressing because history can never undo itself and is with us forever. And this boy is imagining this sort of rolling back of the regime, but it can't happen. And we know that. And it's so, it, I just found it so sad. And then the sort of picture of him as a baby at the end, there is this sort of like moral crisis and he doesn't kill him, but it doesn't, it's good that he doesn't, you know, kill in quotes, of course, but it doesn't solve anything because nothing has changed. Right. So it's this, it leaves you feeling just like, I felt like someone had like scooped my insides out after I watched this movie. Cause you're just like, Oh my God. I mean, I thought the whole thing was amazing, but I really respected use of the archival footage at the end, even if it was really upsetting to me because it felt like that was the point they were trying to make with the movie. And I think there is a value sometimes in watching stuff that is really brutal and upsetting, even if it's not fun. Like, obviously, you're not always in the mood for that. But this is part of what film can achieve is to make you think about these things and to sort of upset you in this way. And I didn't find any of this gratuitous, which is like, we've talked a lot about violence on this podcast. And as I've gotten older, as I've said before, like I've gotten much more impatient with all kinds of violence on film because I just think it often achieves nothing. And this movie is so violent and horrible, but it is doing it for a purpose in a way that I found spiritually worthwhile, even if watching it was like awful. I mean, I finished this and was like, I need a drink and I don't drink and I never have drunk, but I was just like, I need alcohol. <laughs> um, but it, but I'm so glad I saw it. <laughs> In conclusion, I remain astounded and impressed by the range of films that we are getting requests for from listeners. <laughs> oh my God, I know. It's wild. It's been a true, a true range. If, if anyone watches this film or enjoyed this podcast, let us know on Twitter. I'm curious. I mean, yeah, I would love to hear thoughts. I mean, again, obviously, as if you've listened to this and haven't watched it, you should have a sense by now of what you're getting into. Yeah, I mean, uniquely traumatizing film. Yeah, but if you're up for it and if this is an area that interests you, which, like, for me, it definitely is... I was really, really glad to have seen this both because I think it's like a masterpiece of the form and also because I'm so interested in the Second World War. I really recommend it sort of with those caveats. So I would love to hear what people think of it if you do watch. And um, thank you so much again to uh, Sigurdur, whose name I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, um, for forcing us to watch it. This was something I was always sort of like planning to watch or not always, but, you know, since I had been reading about earlier in the year I was like oh I should definitely watch that but it's a bit like Tarkovsky movies which I have I've never seen a single Tarkovsky movie because when do you sit down and think you know what I'm gonna watch right now 
something by Tarkovsky. Like it just doesn't. Well, you know. I've I've done that twice, and I applaud you. Because <laughs> actually, there was like towards the beginning of this film, I was like, "Wow, I'm learning what things were like in uh, the Soviet area." Because um, this reminds me specifically of a Tarkovsky movie, because that film was also filmed either in natural light or something in very close to natural light in a similar landscape with a similar like type of house that I've not seen anywhere else, where it's like the idea of being in the mid twentieth century and still living in like what essentially would be like the same style of like wooden peasant house you might have lived in, you know, four hundred years ago, is also present in one of the Tarkovsky movies I saw. I mean, one day when we have movie theaters again, some theater in New York will do a Tarkovsky retrospective and I will go see some in the cinema. But um, So next week, we are doing a Gav's, Gav's Choice episode, if I may say so. Would you like to introduce the listeners to next week's episode? Yeah, we decided to take a brief break from listener requests, of which we've done a great many and we have several more to do on our roster um, because we've done quite a lot of quite serious and often obscure movies recently. I decided let's have a summer blockbuster. Our summer blockbuster is going to be the original 1994 Stargate movie. (laughs) I'm excited. I've seen this movie like, I don't know how many times, probably like five times. It's directed by the notorious disaster movie filmmaker Roland Emmerich. I would say that this movie is actually like an underrated mainstream blockbuster gem alongside stuff like Independence Day and Jurassic Park. On the very unlikely off chance that you don't have any idea what Stargate is, this is what kicked off the TV show, but it is significantly better than the TV show and... It's about an ancient Egyptian artifact that takes people through a big old ring to space alien land Uh, (laughs) and is very clearly based off the quote-unquote non-fiction book Chariots of the Gods, which theorized that the pyramids were built by aliens. I have strong opinions on this. It's an amusing but also very racist uh, conspiracy theory that persists to this day. And it's just it's just a really entertaining movie that has a lot of different elements to both enjoy and criticise um, if you are a fan of sci-fi, blockbusters or Egyptology. And um, I, think, I think we're all going to enjoy ourselves. So Stargate 1994, I'm sure readily available on all types of internet near you. Yes, I have no doubt that that film can be viewed through many, many platforms. It is apparently free on YouTube and on Amazon Prime Video in the United States. So, have at it, folks. I've never seen this movie. This is going to be an adventure for us. We'll see how I respond. <laughs> I mean, that's a great pitch. You've made it sound very entertaining. So, uh, I I look forward to experiencing that. I don't think I've ever seen a Roland Emmerich movie before because he makes silly films. So, this will be a first for me. I've seen several. I'm just kind of trying to see like a list of his movies. I'm reasonably sure this is the only good one. You mean you didn't love 2012? I'm shocked. (laughs) Yeah, I I was bad-mouthing the day after tomorrow in last week's podcast, and I can only reiterate that it's a bad film. Oh no, wait, Roland Emmerich literally did direct Independence Day, so I would say those are the two two good Roland movies. He peaked early. But God knows he makes money, so, you know. Alright, well, Stargate next week. Get ready, everybody. 
Thank you again to uh, Sigurdur, to all of our Patreon subscribers. If you would like to listen to our special bonus episode on the Old Guard, that is on our Patreon right now uh, at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. And if you would like to force us to watch a movie of your choosing, you can do that over there as well. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our t- Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.